Hello, listeners. Welcome to your bonus episode of Power Lines from Ukraine to the world. I am Anastasia Lapatina. And I'm Jakub Parushinsky. So this week, as promised, we have a really special episode for you. A couple of weeks ago, we got a chance to speak with one of the most significant people working on Eastern European policy, Radoslav Sikorsky. Jakub, I know you are really excited about doing this interview, so why don't you give us a quick intro? Yeah, so Radoslav, or as Poles call him Radek Sikorsky, is a bit of an eclectic character. Initially, he was one of the student protesters under communism, ended up getting political asylum in the UK, studying at Oxford, and then became a war correspondent in Afghanistan. But he's best known for his political career as Poland's foreign minister from 2007 to 2014, where he really shaped both Polish and European foreign policy towards Eastern Europe. He's the co-architect together with the former Swedish Prime Minister Carl Bildt, of the Eastern Partnership. That is the EU policy towards six neighbors in the East, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. And throughout this time, he was essentially building a format to engage with these countries that I think purposefully, but certainly from uh, Moscow's perspective, ended up frustrating Russian efforts to re-engage these countries in a sort of neo-imperial sphere of influence. Sikorsky is interesting because he provides us with a view on how the environment was shaped in terms of foreign policy in Ukraine, but across the, the whole region and where it might go next. He sounds like such a fascinating figure, especially given that in between all of that, he managed to be a war correspondent in Afghanistan, which just like seems like this very exciting patch of her life that doesn't necessarily fit with all of his other pursuits. His experience is extremely impressive. And nowadays, he's best known as Anne Applebaum's husband. <laughs> Let's get into the interview. Thank you so much for joining us on Powerlines podcast. I would like to jump back in time a little bit, uh, back to sort of the mid 2000s. So you played a huge role in shaping the EU's foreign policy, especially towards the East, as a principal architect of the Eastern Partnership, uh, launching European Endowment for Democracy, amongst many other initiatives. Thinking back to those times and looking at how things have evolved in the past decade, what would you say worked? What should have been done differently? How do you see sort of the evolution of the EU's foreign policy since those times? Uh, it was also under the Polish presidency of the EU that we closed the text of the association agreement with Ukraine uh, that included deep and comprehensive uh, free trade area. And one of the things that should have been done much faster was the uh, processing of the text by commission services, by the lawyers and by the translators. Unfortunately, despite my best efforts, uh, it took something like 18 months, which um, gave the Russian side a long time to prepare a response. Another uh, mistake, I think, uh, by the EU was to um, tie the uh, Ukraine aspiration process with the uh, fate of the uh, Yulia Tymoshenko affair. And the third mistake was that in 2013, when Russia started a um, trade embargo on Ukraine in response to Ukraine joining the association agreement, the EU, despite, again, the protestations of Carl Bildt and myself, decided to treat that as a bilateral issue between Ukraine and Russia. 
whereas actually it was a Russian punishment of Ukraine for her European aspirations. But this is not the EU um, fault, but perhaps some of the key Western leaders encouraged Ukraine in 2014 not to fight back against the Russian Anschluss of Crimea. Yeah. I'm sure it was well meant, you know, the default position of Western leaders is to try to avoid violence and to to seek stability. But I think with hindsight, I would speculate that if Ukraine had fought in uh, Crimea, then the putsch in Donbass and elsewhere might not have happened. Uh, and then things would have could have gone differently. I mean, it's something that we're painfully aware of now, I guess, is that, you know, Russia stops pushing at the moment when you start fighting back. There isn't sort of a kind of something that might seem reasonable from Brussels perspective looks very different from from Moscow's perspective. But so so if I can go back to this, basically, if I understand it, the sort of integration of Ukraine into the European system, because it is an integration, right? Even if it isn't integration into the EU, you're still taking on a lot of EU legislation, European acquis. So that should have been done faster. It should have been done quicker, less time for Moscow to react. Yes, but remember that the country principally at fault for the slow process was actually, I have to say this, was Ukraine. Ukraine wasted a quarter of a century. Compare Poland's efforts with Ukraine's efforts. We were absolutely determined to join the West in the 1990s because we knew that the geostrategic opening would not last forever. Whereas Ukraine played what her leaders thought was some kind of big game between Russia, the United States, and the EU, and choosing some kind of third way between um, the Soviet system and the free market system. And all that happened was that Ukraine was drifting, was drifting economically and was drifting geopolitically. Had Ukraine been more determined, Ukraine might have joined the EU already. So some of the blame has to uh, be apportioned where it lies. Look, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Poland's GDP and Ukraine's we're about the same per capita. Yeah. And 25 years later, Poland is three times richer. That's the scale of Ukraine's failure, I'm afraid. Yes, definitely agree with that. And I think there's both a lack of clarity of vision, but I, I would also argue a lack of bureaucratic capability. There is that, but there is also greed and corruption, let's remember. Uh, I talked to people who worked in uh, the Ukrainian administration, and the corruption was just overwhelming. A former finance minister told me that her own secretaries were selling her calendar to oligarchs. <laughs> Whatever for. The, that's the first time I've heard of that version, but but that doesn't surprise me in the least. Uh, no, but so so you're absolutely right. Ukraine had a level of corruption that I think few in the West can really fathom for a quarter of a century, as you say. You know, when I visited Kiev, I would routinely notice that there were more Bentleys and Range Rovers in front of the Rada than in front of the House of Lords. That tells you something too. Maybe the Lords have a different parking space. <laughs> <laughs> um, so fast forward to today. We see, at least at the moment right now, it looks like the Russian 
so-called sphere of influence, the EU, the West, these are irreconcilable blocks. How should we think from the perspective of the EU, from the perspective of the West, think about future politics, future relationships with, let's say, Eurasia? Well, Putin has to lose and Ukraine has to win. And uh, I think Putin uh, bit far more than he can chew. He has already destroyed the reputation of the Russian army and of Russia itself, of its defense industry, of its um, oil and gas industry. We will have a difficult winter, but uh, I I think he vastly underestimates the power of democracies uh, to endure. And I think Russia is going into a decade of um, decline and, and a possible transition crisis. At our last meeting with Lavrov in St. Petersburg, I told him, look, don't take on the West. We are 18 times bigger economically. And if you add Japan 20 times, you can't win. He seemed surprised by this pretty obvious (laughs) calculation. So unfortunately, Ukraine is paying the price. But the the recent successes have convinced uh, the West that this is winnable. As regards the broader picture, my friend and mentor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, used to say that the uh, choice for Russia is to be either an ally of the West or a vassal of China. And I think you can see now that um, Putin has made the wrong choice. I think it's because the interests of Putin are actually not aligned with the interests of Russia. The interest of Russia to be an ally is to be an ally of the West. The interest of Putin is to be in an ideological alliance of autocrats. But hopefully there will be patriotic Russians who will turn this around because Putin is destroying the future of his country. I think the the true victory of the West would be not only the, the securing of Ukraine, but also the transformation of Russia. As you say, you know, for Russia, there is an alternative of turning west or turning east, so to speak. It looks like the idea of Russia as a great power has been very significantly damaged, perhaps irreversibly damaged for a long time by the war in Ukraine and the number of failures that have stacked up. I think it started earlier, obviously. If you construct a a system based on pervasive lies and total corruption, it should be no surprise that it's not efficient. Yes. It's just that Putin was maintaining a facade that was credible to us and partly to himself. You know, he has believed in his own lies. That, that That's the fate of dictators, that they believe in their own propaganda. Remember, Putin was furious when Barack Obama once said that uh, Russia is a regional power because Putin was aspiring to parity with at least one global power center, with China, with the EU, or with the United States. And now Russia is becoming not just not a superpower, it's becoming kind of a large Iran. Putin will be seen not as a restorer of the Russian empire, but as its gravedigger. Absolutely. Yet there are many who still think that what we are seeing is a move towards a multipolar world, right? So I I completely agree with your analysis of the situation from a Russian perspective. But then you look at, for example, the meeting that we had in Samarkand, and you see that 
Modi is there and Erdogan is there. And a lot of people around the world are kind of cheering for a more multipolar world, despite the horrors that we see of what that world actually looks like, right? I think a multipolar world where, you know, the the big neighbors bully their weaker neighbors is one that is quite terrifying. Yet, you know, a lot of people, essentially, they are just want the table to be overturned and they're tired of this hegemony of America or whatever you call it. The hegemony has been over for some time. I mean, America had its unipolar moment in the 1990s, and then it chose to spend the political, financial and military capital of that on on the ill-conceived Iraq war. Uh, where it was um, discredited and and its resources were wasted. And look, the United States used to be 50% of world GDP. Now it's, what, 20, 18? In terms of uh, demography, the West is, with every decade, becoming a smaller proportion of global humanity. But we should be able to adjust to that. That doesn't mean that we can't still be very prosperous and very powerful as the club of democracies. And we can still be an example to follow. You know, it's still the case that people migrate to the United States and to the European Union rather than vice versa. For some reason, they find our way of life uh, preferable. And this is what's at stake in the Ukraine-Russia war. The Ukrainian people decided that they didn't want to live under this old-fashioned and inefficient and cruel autocracy. And they want to uh, level up to the standards um, of the democratic West. And uh, I think that's a great development. And I hope Putin is right in that sense that if Ukraine becomes successful, the people of Russia will demand the same. That is a threat to Putinism. I just hope Putinism gets defeated. What do you think is the lesson that people in Delhi or in Tehran or perhaps in Ankara are taking out of this? Well, the people of uh, Iran are, of course, uh, pro-democratic and pro-Western. But the regime has now tied itself to Russia. The sight of Putin going cap in hand to Iran to beg for some drones from a country that is an economic basket case and is not famous for the modernity of its military shows uh, the scale of Russia's humiliation. Okay, but let me let me challenge that a little bit because there's a different argument which says look, these various autocracies or uh, let's say hybrid regimes as well if we, you know, zoom out a little bit more, it turns out that they do have some ability to help each other out in difficult times, right? So if I am, you know, running a regional power uh, somewhere around the world, I see that when things are tough, when we get locked out by the West from finance, from trade, from whatever it is, there are other friendly states that we can turn to for help. Even after you have been shunned by the world, there is still this country club of mostly dictators that are ready to receive you. Is there now a big enough sort of coalition there to actually pose a real threat? Uh, Yes, but the help that they are giving one another is actually resources down the drain. What has Russia benefited from uh, its investments in Venezuela and so on? Look, yes, I mean, we have a a competition of systems. We have the free world and we have um, the hybrid systems. And we shall see a decade or two down the line which is more efficient. And it will be seen in economic progress, in technological progress, and at the cutting edge, I'm afraid, also on the battlefield. 
We just have to prevail. Turning back towards the the EU, we now have a country that has bled for the EU like no other. Even if it doesn't become a full member, I think that story in itself, it, it can't but not change the nature and the the sort of what the EU represents, what Europe represents. It's a very powerful political symbol. I think it resonates in Poland. It resonates in the Baltic states. Do you think this is something that can resonate more broadly? And, and will it change the EU? It's already changed the EU. Would you have thought a year ago that the EU would be funding weapons deliveries? Would you have thought that the EU, uh, the European Central Bank, would be freezing and aggressors um, foreign currency reserves? Would you have guessed that the EU would be sending billions of uh, euros in macro uh, financial assistance? By its sacrifice and courage and success, Ukraine has got the candidate status. But here I have to tell our Ukrainian viewers what I've always told them out of friendship, which is the unvarnished truth. I did it during the uh, Maidan, where I um, warned them that Yanukovych was preparing a bloodbath and that the um, agreement was a good tactical move. I told it to the uh, Ukrainian uh, parliamentarians in Munich a week before the war that the war was indeed coming, which was uh, an outlier view. And I'll tell you now, just because you are a candidate and just because you are fighting our war doesn't mean that there will be any lowering of standards for Ukraine before you become a member. So instead of imagining that the EU will make concessions, it will not. Take the realistic view, and I'll tell it to you brutally so that it gets through, okay? This is not a negotiation, because a negotiation suggests a process in which both sides make concessions. And the EU side has existed for decades now, has a body of laws that is a, an outcome of thousands of compromises, and it will not change that body of laws for the sake of Ukraine. Ukraine has to accept the whole body of European law as is, literally translate it into Ukrainian and pass it in the rudder. If you waste your time on imagining that the EU will change to suit you, you will just delay the process. So to be even more blunt, I'll say this is not a negotiation. This is a voluntary Anschluss. And it's hard, it's painful, and it's humiliating. We went through it ourselves. I know what I'm talking about. It's worth it in the end. And the faster you do it, the quicker you'll get the prize and the less pain you'll inflict on yourself. There's also a lot of back-channel diplomacy that is involved. Over the war, Ukrainians have proved to be masterful in their communications, I would say, to global audiences. I think Ukraine won the information war in the West but drew in the global south. Why is that? Because the global south tends to be anti-American, and this is seen as a Ukrainian war with American help, which is what it is. And so the global south is very skeptical about the United States and therefore somewhat receptive to Russian arguments. On this issue of the information war, because I think it's something very important, the last couple of years or last decade even, I think the West started to take it very seriously when it comes to Eastern Europe, when it comes to countering Russian influence at home. It has taken it as seriously when it comes to, you know, 
Arabic when it comes to the Spanish-speaking world. I mean, can the West even win this? It's such a big effort. Like, it took so much effort to, to try to win it at home. Is it something that can be won abroad? As you say, we, we accepted the challenge uh, way too late. And it's only now that we are beginning to be successful. But look, in the Arab world or in India, you don't feel threatened by Russia or in Latin America. You know, all these arguments are very theoretical until bombs start falling, because then it's clear whose bombs are hitting whose cities. And that really clarifies um, many of the lies and misconceptions. And we have this clarity now, unfortunately, because of what's happening in Ukraine. Many others don't and probably never will. Thank you so much for your time. It was a real pleasure to speak. And if you're ever in, in Kiev, we would be uh, thrilled to host you at Kiev Independent. I actually will be in Kiev because um, my wife and I have bought a pickup for the Ukrainian army, which I intend to deliver personally. So see you in Kiev. That's amazing. No, it's really highly appreciated. And uh, I saw that actually some friends of mine were helping out with the delivery on the Ukrainian side. So yeah, thank you so much for that. Slava Ukrainian. Gerard Slava. Thank you so much for listening to Powerlines. We'll see you next week for our regular episode where we'll be speaking to Helen Thompson about the impact of the war on global resources. Powerlines is a partnership between the Kyiv Independent and Message Heard. It was produced by B. Duncan, Harry Stott, and Talia Augustidis. The executive producer is Sandra Ferrari. The theme music is by Tom Biddle and Alfie Godfrey.